Hey, what's going on? It is Dr. Race here with another episode of The Sound of the Genuine. And today we got Betsy Lay, who is the co-founder and owner of Lady Justice Brewing in Aurora, Colorado. She began her career working in education, in youth ministry, and in theological education. And we are so excited to hear her story about how she went from ministry to philanthropic Lady Justice Brewing Company. Betsy, I am so glad you joined us here on The Sound of the Genuine. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing okay. And I'm excited, one, because I have an order that I'm going to place as soon as we get off this call so I can be your customer. And before we get to all that story, I'm actually curious about your origins. Where'd you start? Where'd you grow up? Like, who are your people? Where did all this dreaming begin? I grew up in St. Louis in a pretty progressive family. My mom and dad are very progressive folks. And my grandparents on my dad's side are were much more conservative, but not conservative like we talk about today, you know, but like politics and activism wasn't anything we discussed at the Lay family Thanksgiving. But my mom's side, the Hamras, Lebanese family, big Lebanese, stubborn Arab family that was really dedicated to social justice issues and activism in that way. And so that's sort of where a lot of the seeds were planted. It's just watching my family on a regular basis, you know, protest and travel and my Mima probably still to this day writes angry letters to the editor you know so just sitting there and letting the world happen to you is not something that my mom's family allows for yeah so I grew up in St. Louis and grew up in the United Methodist Church and actually really enjoyed that had a lot of good friends we had a strong family and youth program there so that was a really central part of my growing up and upbringing Outside of that, went to a small, smaller high school that was in the city. We had less than 200 kids in my high school class. So just being in a community where people knew each other and actually, for the most part, kind of liked each other. It was just weird. It was weird. I don't think my high school experience was similar to a lot of other people's. Yeah, I grew up around strong communities of people that I actually really enjoyed and, and learned a lot from. When I really think back on how I ended up at Lady Justice, you know, I never wanted to be a business owner and I never thought I would be a brewer or anything like that. And so I'm like, how the hell did I get there? I think the seeds are actually planted pretty early on for me in terms of social enterprise. My mom is a lawyer and she's had her own law firm since I was a kid. And I didn't realize that until growing up that like, actually, my mom was a small business owner and ran her own show for almost my whole life. And it wasn't until I grew up and started my own business where I actually really started thinking about that on those terms. Because, you know, when you're a kid, like your mom just goes to work, right? I didn't didn't think it was that impressive. Uh, But actually, now that I'm an adult, I can look back on it. I was like, holy crap, like she was a woman in a male dominated industry who became really highly respected and ran her own business for like 25, 30 years. I'm seeing some strong themes already. I mean, you mentioned your Mima, your mom, uh, strong women who are doing this. I mean, what were their hopes for you growing up in St. Louis? How would you answer that question? When I grow up, I want to do or I want to be or. My thing is, and I think this is partly why I ended up with Lady Justice, is I never knew what I wanted to be. For a little while, I was going to be the very first woman baseball player in the major leagues. And then my mom told me once how much anesthesiologists make. So I wanted to be an anesthesiologist for a while. 
because <laughs> they made a crap ton of money. <laughs> and so I floated around for a long time. But the expectation was always like, you're going to go to college. Of course, you're going to go to college. And of course, you're going to have a job and you'll end up, you know, with your own house. So like the typical steps that, that were available to kids growing up in the suburbs <laughs> were the same expectations that were held on me. But I think there was always an expectation as well that no matter what you do, you need to be in service to people and in service to your community. And so maybe that's why I floated around so much is that there aren't a whole lot of jobs where it's like service oriented that you can also feed yourself with. But I have a lot of teachers in my family. My dad was a chemistry and physics teacher for 30 years. He's still adjuncts at the college level. My grandparents, my aunts, uncles, tons of teachers in my family. So I saw a lot of that growing up too. Not necessarily an ambition to be rich, but more of an ambition to take care of what you need to take care of for your household and then make sure that you're helping your community. So if you have this strong community, strong family community, high school where people really like each other, this does sound awesome. And you're thinking about your next steps. Going to, say, college, were you looking at like, I need to find an undergraduate program. It's got a great anesthesiology program and a great baseball program. Like, what, what were you looking at? Where'd you end up? Yeah, what'd you end up doing? I thought for a little while I would do music. I was a saxophone player in the jazz band in high school and really loved it. But I was not disciplined enough in any way, shape, or form to go to music school. The direction that I ended up going was digital media. I graduated from high school in 2000. And so digital media was brand new. And the reason that I liked it, that I thought I could do it, is my dad always had cool computers and cool cameras. He ran a little production company, a media company for a little while. So I always enjoyed that stuff. And that was stuff that came pretty easily to me. Audiovisual design and then some graphic design. There are two schools in the country in the year 2000 that had digital media as a program. One of them was Bradley University, which was in Peoria, Illinois, five-hour drive from my house. And my mom really wanted me to go there because she wanted me to stay closer to home. Her role was like, you can go anywhere you want, do whatever you want, but like, can you just be like a six-hour drive from home? And I was like, okay. And then the University of Denver had the very first digital media program in the country. It was five years old in the year 2000. I got into both schools and ended up going to DU, so a 12-hour drive instead of a six-hour drive. But once my mom understood that I would probably do better in Denver than in Peoria, Illinois, she was cool with it. And that was in 2000, and I'm still here. I left for a little while, but I'm back. I'm still, I'm still here, yeah. Out of St. Louis, what was going to Denver like? I mean, were you finding that sense of community and the people that, that you had growing up? Because church and music were the two places where I found community growing up, I looked for that in Denver and accidentally stumbled across like more conservative evangelical groups, not totally understanding what they were and what was going on. So I actually ended up making friends with a lot of people who were just completely different than me and had totally different views of the world and of theology and religion and church. And I really like struggled with, not with them as people, I really liked them as people, but then like we, we were getting these conversations about all sorts of stuff. And I'm like, how the hell do you believe this? Like, how do you, how do you actually like believe this as a Christian? And so I accidentally became friends with conservative Christians. I didn't mean to, it just sort of happened, but I did find a good community with those folks. You know, it was just an understanding that I probably disagreed with them on almost everything. 
but I'm still friends with some of those people today. So my community was more centered around, not necessarily around church, because I didn't go to church that much in college, but it was centered around a Christian community for the most part. And then by the end of graduation, I was just like so opposed to the theology that was coming out of those communities that I just really couldn't do it anymore. The ideas around service and around service to your community was there. We just approached it differently. And what'd you do post-graduation? I mean, what's the next step after that? The next step, I went and moved to the mountains for um, a season and worked at a lodge. It was actually owned by Young Life. They have all these like camp properties and stuff. And this was like their family camp. And so me and six or seven other, like, like we were all 20, 22 years old, something like that, lived together in a little house in the mountains on this ranch. And we were glorified janitors for about four months. Yeah. So I did that and that was great. That was really fun. It was a nice little escape from reality for a little while after college. And then that internship ended in November of that year. And I moved back to St. Louis for a little bit to try to figure out what I was going to do next and moved into my mom's basement. I get along wonderfully with my family and it's never really been contentious. We've always got along, but at some point I was like, I just don't want to live here anymore. So I found a small apartment in St. Louis and actually for a little while I was working at my mom's law office just to make some money. And then somehow found myself being the youth director at the church I grew up at. (laughs) I spent two years running the youth program there. It was a fun job, but it was very challenging because it's hard to be a, in a position of authority in a place where like they used to like change your diapers, you know, but it was, it was cool. It was fun. My little brother was in the youth group for a couple of years when I was running it. While I was there, there were four pastors on staff of that church and three of them had gone to Perkins SMU for seminary. And one of them had been in St. Louis at Eden and all four of them were like, you need to go to seminary. I was like, okay. I never wanted to be a pastor, I don't think. At that point, I was not out, but I knew that I was gay. And I knew that that was not going to fly in the Methodist Church in Missouri. And so I didn't really know what I was going to do with my life. But I was like, yeah, sure, I'll go to to grad school. I'm not going to wear my mom's law office forever. I don't want to work in this church forever. So yeah, I spent two years in St. Louis and then moved to Dallas. I went down there originally to do a master's in church ministry. It was a program they had and ended up switching to an MTS and going that route because it only took two years. So it cost less money. <laughs> so you get this MTS. So now you got this credential. You've been pastoring. I mean, it sounds like just searching or maybe just letting life happen. What comes after? Because like MTS, that's not like a fun degree. Like people don't go like, hey, how do I just like do some church history and Hebrew Bible. Let me just throw all these things together. Loved it. That is my jam. If I could just sit in a room and research theology all day long, holy crap, I would love it. And like, why didn't you get your PhD, Betsy? Well, like every PhD I know, like they either hate their jobs or they don't have one. So it's like, I'm not going to get a PhD. But no, I loved doing an MTS. I went to Perkins School of Theology at Southern Methodist University. I had the best time there. Talk about community again. Whatever the magic was that they did in their admissions program that year, we were like just immediately a very tight cohort of people who really cared about each other a lot. But when I graduated again, yeah, it's like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this degree. I mean, obviously I wasn't going to be a pastor. I didn't get a MDiv. I didn't go through the ordination route. I had had enough bad experiences being gay in the United Methodist Church in Missouri that I just didn't want to go there. But 
and still liked the church at that point. And so not really knowing what I was going to do, I went and started looking for jobs in Denver again and stumbled across this job opportunity to work at a nonprofit via AmeriCorps. I applied for that and got hired there. And so I moved to Denver in 2009. When you're in AmeriCorps, there's a couple of different programs that you can do. And so I was a VISTA, which is volunteer in service to America. The whole idea is that you're paid the poverty level at the city in which you serve and you do capacity building for a nonprofit. So yeah, I spent two years doing that. It was funny. My mom was like, how much money do you make? So <laughs> And you just got a master's degree. So yeah, I was making $10,000 a year because that was the poverty level in Denver in 2009. Again, amazing community of people. There were five Vistas that worked in that office together and we're still all best friends and still um, are very much involved in each other's lives to this day. The work was hard and I would never, ever do that job again. I think everybody should do AmeriCorps, by the way. I think it's a good way to serve your community and your country in a, in a different way. I feel very fortunate that my experience in AmeriCorps led me to the community that I have today. And now you're back in Denver and through this AmeriCorps experience. I mean, is this where, I don't know, I was going to say the seeds, you know, I say this with other guests, mm -hmm. seeds, but I guess with you, it'd be hops. Is this where some of that stuff started to ferment? Hops? Hops are a flower. They start in seeds. So you can go with seeds. Yeah. So this was it. In AmeriCorps, I met Jen Cuesta and Kate Power, they were two of the five people that we were assigned to this nonprofit with. And Denver in 2009, 2010 was just a touch ahead of the craft beer scene that the rest of the country hadn't really had yet. But there had been really good craft beer in Denver for about 30 years at that point, 30, 40 years. So yeah, going and getting a beer at a brewery was normal everyday life in Denver in 2010. When we could afford it, we would scrap together some money and go to this brew pub and drink beer and eat and just like kind of have a good time. And there's no money anywhere. Being a fundraiser during a recession is really awful, awful work. And so we would go and grab beers after work and just commiserate about all of this. And at some point, we think it was Jen was just sort of like, what I don't understand is like, we're on food stamps right now. We're at the poverty line. But we made it a priority to gather over beer and food together. And this place is always packed. So like we're in the middle of a recession and everybody here is choosing to drink beer instead of saving their money for something else. Like, what is that about? And why can't we just take our beer money and fund this nonprofit? Hey, what's going on? It's Dr. Patrick Reyes here. If you are an aspiring social entrepreneur or you have an idea that you want to take to a business that's informed by your faith, our partners at Do Good X, FTE's Accelerator, designed for underrepresented social entrepreneurs, has a course called Built for This. This course is designed to help you discern whether or not you got that social entrepreneur bug in you. You got the gifts to see your business through, to find the solutions that our world so desperately needs. So head on over to dogoodx.org, sign up by March 9th so you can have access to the community, the resources that you need to discern if starting a business is right for you. That's dogoodx.org, and we look forward to seeing you in that course. And it was honestly just this tipsy little conversation, and we went on with our lives after that. But it really stuck with Kate, this idea of somehow funneling money from a brewery 
and using it to fund nonprofits. And so she really stuck with it. And when we were done with AmeriCorps in 2011, Kate and Jen both left the state to go to law school. And I stuck around Denver and I went back to church work because that's what I knew. Directed family and youth programming at a Methodist church in Boulder for three and a half, four years. And so during that time, Kate's developing this sort of idea of a business plan because she's in law school and has to do some business law stuff and needed to build a business plan for a class that she was in. And so she started working on this and getting feedback about what does it look like to to build a brewery that is philanthropic. I was living in Denver and working in Boulder. While we were in AmeriCorps, somebody else from a different AmeriCorps branch came and worked with us for a few weeks. And that's Allison, who ended up being my wife. And so Allison and I were making our home in Denver and trying to figure out what came next for both of us. Because two people coming out of AmeriCorps, you know, we didn't have any money. We didn't have anything. So I was working for a really progressive church in Boulder and learning a lot about what it means to be a white progressive person in a city like Boulder and what progress actually means to that community and what community actually means that community. And then at some point, they were just running out of money and had to cut down a lot of programming. So I got laid off from that job in 2014. And Jen and Kate graduated from law school in 2014. And they came back to Denver. And so we were all in Denver without any jobs and not really sure what to do. <laughs> so while we looked for jobs, we built Lady Justice, built up that concept and built a business plan and started brewing together again. And so as you start brewing, I mean, I'm hearing like the community piece, the thread going through this back to these friends, your partner, your wife, all gathering together back in Denver. Now, 2014, I want everyone so that they hear this right. Like you start brewing together. It's not like Lady Justice in 2014. You say, all right, we got a brewery and everyone across the country starts ordering from your website immediately. Tell us a little bit about like, what does that mean to start something and say, okay, we're going to try to do this? Yeah. For Lady J, it looked very different, I think, than it looks for a lot of people. We intentionally made very calculated risks and took a lot of baby steps because there was not a good set example of a social enterprise brewery in 2014. And so we were doing something that was actually kind of new. We did not have backgrounds in business or in brewing. We didn't know what the hell we were doing. We had no idea. First step for us was building a business plan and really figuring out what this could be and simultaneously also figuring out if it was legal. There's a lot of weird laws around al alcohol and what you can and can't do and where you can and can't sell it and how to make that happen. And you can't have a 501c3 that profits off of alcohol sales. The federal government really wants tax revenue from booze. And so we're like, how do we start? How do we even like give money away? You know, like, how do we do this work if we're not a nonprofit? And so we were really just learning about what it means to be a for-profit business that gives all its money away. So we were trying to figure that out and we were building a business plan and we were trying to figure out how to fundraise it. And at the same time, we were homebrewing together. We had all dabbled in homebrewing. We all knew beer pretty well. Just being in Denver, it's hard not to be exposed to the craft beer scene if you want to be exposed to it, it is around literally every corner. So we knew beer. We knew how to drink it. <laughs> we were brewing together all the time and trying to get some recipes dialed in to have, we wanted to have a really, really good product. And so that was 2014. And then in 2015, we finally felt like we were ready to launch our fundraiser. And we did not want to put ourselves into debt for this because again, we didn't know if it was going to work and we didn't really have any money anyway. Like, Two unemployed lawyers and one unemployed church worker does not equal a business loan. 
So we were also trying to figure out how do we raise money for this in a way that gets us to where we need to be, but is also money that we feel like people will trust us with, you know. And so we launched a crowdsource campaign via Indiegogo and we figured out that we only needed $20,000 to get a few months rent on a space buy a one and a half barrel brew system and some fermenters. And so we could do this really, really small if we didn't build a tap room. So if we just only had a production space and distributed our beer out of there, we could do this very cheaply. We gathered together a group of our friends. We gave them some of our beer and we just said like, hey, you've been listening to us talk about this over the last year. You've been trying out these brews with us and giving us feedback. Now we actually want to do this and we want to launch this thing and, and we want it to work. We didn't ask any of them to give us money. What we asked them to do was to spread the word and share the campaign. Allison, she did social media as a profession for 10 years. So she knew what she was doing. So she set up a whole schedule of when to post about it and what to say so that we could beat the algorithm and all of that stuff. And we launched our Indiegogo campaign. Our goal on Indiegogo was $15,000 and we raised that in eight days and then we raised the rest of it over the, the rest of the month. So we ended up with the 20K that we needed to. And then because it was a crowdsourcing campaign, we ended up with about 100, 150 people who had given money to us. And so we had this new audience. Some of it was friends and family, but some of it was like complete strangers. And so we were learning through this fundraising that this idea was going to resonate with people. Like we really didn't know if this was going to work or not, but it started feeling like, oh, this is going to work. People do care about us. So that's how we got started. Very, very small and scrappy. <laughs> and I know you weren't doing just this. What were you doing alongside this as you're building Lady Justice? So eventually all three of us got jobs. Allison, my wife, had just graduated from Isla School of Theology. When you graduate from AmeriCorps, you could choose a cash reward, like they have an award that you get at the end for doing it, I guess, or you can choose educational award money. And so I was like, why would I take free money and use it to pay off my grad school loans when I could just keep going <laughs> to school? I actually took some classes at I Live School of Theology just because I could. It was free. So I was like, why not? I did that for a couple of quarters to let education award money ran out. And then I, <laughs> I dropped out of I Live. But my wife had started a program at ILF right when I was dropping out, and she ended up sticking around there and worked there. She was walking by the dean's office one day. Albert Hernandez is the dean at the time, and she overheard him say, like, my admin assistant disappeared, and I need somebody temporarily to fill in for this office. And so she, like, popped her head in, and she was like, Albert, my wife really needs a job right now. I think she'd be really good here. I went and interviewed with Albert at ILF. We sat there for like, I don't know, an hour and a half, two hours and just like nerded out over medieval Spanish history because <laughs> that's what his specialty is in. And I had gone to Spain during grad school to learn about the golden age of Spain and medieval Spanish history. So we just hit it off. So I started at ILIF just as a temporary job and then it moved into a full-time position and it evolved in a lot of different ways. But that was where I was in 2014, 2015. So eventually, Kate and Jen and I all had jobs. And so we were also balancing this with full-time work. And so this was very much a night and weekend sort of deal with Lady J. I would wake up before I would go to work and work on Lady J stuff from like 6 a.m. until 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning before going to ILF and did that for a few years. And when do you start thinking Lady Justice got a thing? And I also want to position, if you can, position Lady Justice for us in the craft brewery 
scene? Because I don't think a lot of listeners will have a context for that, but my sense of it everywhere else in the country, maybe it's different in Denver, but my sense of it, it's a do man bro yo scene. Tell us a little bit about Lady J too. Beer is predominantly white and male, the beer culture and industry, or at least that's the impression that the beer industry wants you to believe that it's just a bunch of burly white dudes with beards who make and drink beer. Like we ran into people not really believing that we were going to be able to do this or that we knew how to brew or anything because we were women. So we were setting all of this up against this scene that and Denver is actually pretty friendly and a little bit more accessible than I think other places. And again, you have to remember the craft beer scene that we know today is very young. Craft beer has kind of been around since about the 70s is when historians kind of market when Jimmy Carter's homebrew law went into effect. Craft beer as we know it today is really only four or five years old. So we were coming into this pretty early in terms of that. So we were running into people not really understanding women running breweries, and that's still a thing that doesn't really happen. The numbers on that are are sad. We had that going, and then this idea that we weren't going to have a tap room really, really confused people. They were like, well, how do I get your beer? And that was something we had to figure out. You know, our brew space is 300 square feet. We couldn't fit in a tap room. And so we had to get creative about how to get our beer out to people. So when we were in AmeriCorps, we used to split farm shares. So we would all go in together and buy a share into somebody's community garden or their farm, and then you would get the produce from that. So that's how we got cheap, healthy produce in AmeriCorps. So we were like, what if we stole that idea? Community-supported agriculture model. So we started with a membership model. You'd pay your membership up front so that we had all the money we needed right away to make this beer. And that membership gets you beer once a month. We don't like to be exclusive, but by default, we had to be because we could only brew so much beer. And then we knew how much our overhead was, which was pretty cheap because we didn't pay ourselves and rip was cheap and ingredients are fairly accessible in Denver. And so we knew right away how much money we had left over to donate back to nonprofits. So we were able to control our production and our schedule really, really well in those first few years. I think our first round, we had 75 members, and then it grew eventually up to uh, about 125 members, which was our max. And that was almost probably too many people at that point. So we maxed out at about 125 people. Our customer base from day one was not typical, was not a typical craft beer customer base. It was people who wanted the experience of having exclusive craft beer that nobody else in the world was going to have access to. So there was these like uber beer nerds who were like really fascinated with this idea of like true small batch. I made this beer for you. The other people that bought memberships were people who were really into the social enterprise philanthropic model. They were like, oh, you're a brewery that gives back. Like, I like beer. I like giving back to my community. This is awesome. I want to be a part of this community. And then the third one was women who specifically sought us out because we were women brewing and they wanted to check out what this was all about. And all of these people were people who loved beer and were familiar with the Denver craft scene. But you talk about when you walk into a space, do the people there look like you and do they reflect your values? And so we became a space where that was true for our customers. And so that's something that was part of our foundation and I think has sort of stuck with us as we've grown. That's amazing. I got one last question for you. As I think about this narrative arc that you've given us, and I'm going back to your grandmother, to, you know, Mima and, and your mom, 
and having this high school experience that again, I'm jealous of, like, it sounds like you had a great community and what you're doing now with Lady Justice, where the people have a community where they, you know, see and feel like it's reflected there. I mean, I'm going back to this, almost your AmeriCorps experience. You talked about gathering. We still are choosing to gather together as a community over this thing. And in this case, it's beer. I'm of course informed by all this, the way you're doing community, I'm sure with your ministries and all that, but how much of like your imagination about Lady Justice, about what you do in the world, how you're going to spend your time now working on Lady Justice is informed by that sense of community about gathering around something. How much is kind of internal to like that SMU nerd that wants to go and just hang out in a cool library? I think it dominates a lot of it, to be quite honest. I talk about sometimes how beer is a liquid form of breaking bread with people, quite literally. It's alcoholic liquid bread is what beer is. The historical implications that that has, I think we're connected as just human species. We lived off of beer for the first like 10,000 years of civilization before there was clean water beer was a safe form of food and drink for people. And so I think we have this like connection to our ancestors in a way that we don't necessarily understand because industrial revolution and clean water, which, you know, both <laughs> um, have good things to them. But I think we lost our connection with why these things are important to us today. Right. We, we have clean water now and we have better access to food. And so now we can drink beer like just for fun or as a way to gather. When I think about our communities that we've built around Lady Justice, like absolutely see it as being an extension of just as humans, us wanting to find ways to be with each other and connect with each other. The work that we're doing and being connected to our mission and how our community is completely tied to our mission and how those things always have to be intertwined with each other for us to be truly living out our mission. I think about that all the time. My history of always seeming to find myself in really good communities of people and really productive communities of people. And then having this theological background and this theological understanding of like society is basically just a bunch of people trying to figure out like what in the world is going on. <laughs> you know, that's all we're doing. And so being able to connect that with beer is really cool. I would love to see that aspect. Today is my last day working at ILF School of Theology and I'll move into Lady Justice full-time. We have a tap room now. We have a larger production. You know, we keep growing. And so as Lady Justice continues to evolve and grow, I will absolutely keep paying attention to these connections that I've had. I think there's a lot of theology behind what we do at Lady J, even though that's not our mission. Kate and Jen don't have theological backgrounds or necessarily religious backgrounds, but you know, they're spiritual in their own way. But I think this idea of community and connection and beer are always going to be central to Lady J's mission. I just have to find other ways to talk about it that the, don't put people <laughs> to sleep, you know, like not everybody wants to hear the nerdy beer history behind what they're drinking. So, you know, we try to make it fun. That's awesome. I mean, I'm so excited about it. If people want to find out more about Lady J, where to get it, where would they go for more information? And also just to find out more about how you've thought about the social enterprise model as a way of brewing beer to give back. Following our social media accounts is the best way to do it. Instagram and Facebook, both at Lady Justice Brewing. And then our website has our history and all sorts of info like that, which is LadyJusticeBrewing.com. If you're in the Denver area, our tap room is in Aurora. You can come see us in person. We do ship to nine or 10 states, and that's all dependent on the law of the state that you live in. 
So we can ship to the places where we can legally ship to for free without having to get permits and licensing and all that. So that's all on our website too. And then this idea of social enterprise and beer and all of that is starting to become a little bit more of a focus. So I'm actually teaching at ILIF in the fall precisely on this and teaching students. The idea is that they will have a business plan for a social enterprise, whether it's real or fake. But, you know, they're going to go through the steps of learning how to start one and the nitty gritty details. Speaking with Bo Yang, who's the dean at ILIF and who connected us, I'm hopeful that this can grow into a more outside community sort of program. So keep your eyes out on ILIF over the next few years, too, because I think there's really something special here, especially people who don't want to be in traditional ministry or can't be in traditional ministry and are struggling to find what to do. I think social enterprise can be an answer for that. And so I anticipate working with ILIF on this for actually a really long time and figuring out how we develop this for folks who aren't full-time students at ILIF. That's exciting. I mean, I'm seeing down into the future, the AI lab brewing beer at ILIF, building a social enterprise that does good in the world. So that way we can spend more time sitting around the table, building community. Yeah, we'll let Justin and Michael and Ted at ILIF build some like beer robot that can brew and <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on The Sound of the Genuine Betsy. I just appreciate it. I'm inspired by the story. I'm grateful that you're doing this. I cannot wait to taste this and come and visit you. I've been talking to Boy Young coming up to Denver, so I, I will be coming to see you in person whenever that's safe. I mean, this has just been a gift. Uh, what you're doing in the world matters, and I'm, I'm sincerely grateful for this conversation. Yeah, thanks. This was fun. Hey, I want to thank you for listening to the sound of the genuine Betsy Lay's story. I want to say thank you to FT's team who puts these wonderful episodes together. That is Elsie Barnhart and Heather Wallace and Sir Yale Beats for his music. Make sure to share this podcast with a friend. And if you're looking for more resources, head on over to ftleaders.org to find more. Thank you again, and we'll see you next time on the sound of the genuine.